Hello everyone, this is Ryan and you are listening to The Vegan Report. Last August, I posted an episode featuring Catherine Besh, the founder of Vietnam Animal Ed and Rescue. And what is Vietnam Animal Ed and Rescue? Well, it is an animal sanctuary in the middle of the country, Vietnam, where the dog and cat meat trade is thriving, where most veterinarians have close to no veterinary knowledge, where you have one of the highest rates of antibiotic resistance in the world due to the overuse of antimicrobial drugs on farm animals. It is basically an animal rights hellscape, which makes the work of Vietnam Animal Ed and Rescue crazy hard, but also essential. I am re-uploading the episode now because this wonderful organization urgently needs your support. They are in the red and I want to do my best to keep their doors open as lives are at stake. I truly hope that this conversation inspires you to also take action and become a friend of Vietnam Animal Ed and Rescue. Thank you very much, Kat, for being a guest on this podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Let's dive uh, right in with um, my first question uh, for you is, what circumstances led you to live in Vietnam? Yeah, it's sort of a strange story. I had no intent. This was all kind of a totally unintended experience to run an animal rescue in Vietnam. Um, basically, Vietnam is something I've always grown up with, though. My dad was a Marine officer in Vietnam who was shot in 1966. And he was then, he and my mother came back to CIA 1971 to 73. So I'm actually a legacy in Vietnam. This is, um, this is the country I've known about since I was born. My, my dad used his time in the CIA, my mom in the U.S. Embassy. They use it as a shopping trip, essentially, because the government has to bring home all your household goods. Yes. And so my house was surrounded by Vietnamese furniture, Vietnamese art, Vietnamese ceramics, Vietnamese everything. And and so like I was the four year old who could find Vietnam on a map. And it's just always been like that. And so my parents are quite older, quite a bit uh, as parents quite a bit older. And so they, I kind of, they were getting older and I, I had left Mongolia the year before. It was horribly cold. If you're wondering, it's the coldest capital city in the world, Ulaanbaatar. And I was like, you know what? I need some sunshine. And this is a time in my parents' life where I want them to see what had happened to the country they loved so much. And mm -hmm. um, I brought, and I wanted to kind of bring that experience to them before they died we're not real close as a family but i thought this was something that would bring that to us and i mean it didn't really work exactly but i but i came and i fell in love with the place um i planned to stay only six months i was doing my master's degree in disaster management online and so i could kind of be anywhere in the world and i really wanted to follow international disasters but vietnam to me didn't like It wasn't volcanoes and, and earthquakes, but we have seasonal flooding. And so I kind of took that as like, okay, well, this is my disaster to write about. Mm -hmm. um, so I got typhoons and flooding. Um, and kind of looking at how that how that works in the developing world and and how uh, Global South and 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 that's just kind of what kept me here initially. Um, was that I was able to to kind of sustain myself with my master's degree and some freelance writing while I was here. And then poof, 
I ended up with an animal rescue for the past decade and I never left. Yeah. Oops. Well, for someone who doesn't know much about Vietnam, um, how would you describe the place? Gorgeous. Hmm. This is gorgeous. It's, um, it's a really beautiful and extremely green country. Um, and the food is, as a vegan is, in my opinion, the best in the world. I haven't been to some countries that I know are um, known for their vegan food, like Ethiopia as well. But, um, but I can guarantee you that we have, we have our, you know, we're pretty damn good here. Um, so eating is definitely not a problem. Um, I would say Vietnam is full of extremely friendly people. They call Thailand the land of smiles, which I think is crap. I don't think anybody smiles there. You come to Vietnam and you can see that they're just a, like a really friendly, outgoing sort of people. Um, I think it's just warm. They're generally just really warm. Um, I don't know. It's kind of, um, it's diverse. It's a very diverse country and people don't really give it that much credit for being so. Um, I mean, we have four climate zones in the country. So that alone should show you that there is quite a bit of diversity, um, you know, like in the north it's typhoon season for example you know and we won't get ours until october and like mm. you know it, it just kind of varies throughout the year um so so yeah i think the diversity the mountains everything are just really different but it, it is a very beautiful country and it never i never stop being surprised you know i think there's always more to discover just getting on my motorbike and driving into the mountains and and i always feel a sense of wonder here there's no escape from that one of my very best friend uh, her boyfriend is uh, vietnamese and she recently mm. visited vietnam and she showed me some of the pictures of the place and i was like i need to visit this place it's so Stunning. it's Stunning. you know there are beaches there are the food yeah. like you said looks so yummy we don't suffer for food i can tell you that yeah i mean like i i don't want to paint a perfect picture though yeah. Okay, let me let me let me wipe the shine off what I just said <laughs> real fast. Okay, it is a single party state with an not an independent judiciary. Um, it is highly oppressive to its own <laughs> citizens. Um, yes. It is heavily censored. Um, there are a lot of things. If you are a Vietnamese citizen, you are not living a great life. Um, in, in all cases. I mean, they are considered one of the happiest people in the world though, which is interesting. Mm. But as far as like having any 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 ability to be part of the democratic process, that's not really a thing. Um, it's very rare to be to have anybody involved in, in the political situation here that's not like uh, already a suit. I call them suits, mm. you know, the people, the people in suits, you know. Um, so it's not particularly egalitarian in a lot of ways. I think women, you know, domestic violence is prevalent. I think um, animal abuse obviously is something that's a problem or I wouldn't be doing this. Yes. Um, I think there's a lot of things that are, are negative about it. the traffic can be horrible. The honking <laughs> is annoying. The karaoke yes. makes me want to kill myself. Um, there, you know, like I, I love to hate Vietnam and I hate to love it. Um, it is my home in every possible sense, but, but it's not, it's not all shiny and pretty. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie about that. Um, I live a parallel existence as a foreigner in many ways, because we're kind of 
to to Vietnam were a bit of like walking ATMs, being that we have a lot of cash to input as foreigners into the system. I have a I have a fully full foreign owned business license, um, so there there's a lot of things that give me privileges that I wouldn't have otherwise if I were actually from here. Hmm. So I don't want I it's important to recognize the bad with the good. Yes. Well, you know, I had the view of a tourist, basically someone who mm-hmm. was, you know, pla- planning my vacation and thinking yeah. about Vietnam. But, you know, even when I travel and I have traveled um, in um, many places around the world, I have every time witnessed a lot of displays of animal cruelty, you know, sure. exotic. Everywhere in the world. Yeah, exotic yeah. animals on leashes in South America. I, I visited Greece. I was shocked animals. by the number of dogs just in Athens, yeah. you know, their, their capital city, yeah. welcoming you every time you went uh, on a stroll. And right. yeah, uh, Turkey and and the cat yeah. situation there. Um, you know, I, yeah. I, I was thinking about my time in Turkey and with the number of cats outside. I, I wonder how are the birds doing there? <laughs> you know, they must right, be. Great. No. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'd say the same for Greece. I mean, those are probably in Italy is the same population, a high population of domestic cats. People are not sterilizing them. Um, I mean, there are a lot of organizations in Greece, at least, because they've got a lot more help because they're in that part of Europe. But um, and they have a lot of tourists and they have, you know, a, Still, in spite of all of Greece's economic problems, they still have a lot of people that are that are putting money into those projects, including one of our staff, um, our director of operations. She lives in Greece and she does TNR, trap, neuter, release of cats. And so um, she's trying to help with the, getting that population down. But it's an endless cycle and there's not a lot. I mean, it's just so much work to keep that population down. And I believe those initiatives are the exception and not the rule. Yes, absolutely. Because there's still so many people. I was out trapping with her. Uh, I love cat trapping. I used to do it in Alabama um, and when I was living there. And it is, it's frustrating because a lot of people think that it's unnatural to sterilize animals. They still have that very traditional and conservative mindset that it's just like, we shouldn't sterilize animals because we are taking away their natural right to give birth. Um, we try to explain to them that we're trying to prevent suffering and whatever. And this happened, this just happened I guess in the past couple of weeks here as well, trying to sterilize a dog. And the guy was like, no, we just want her to have puppies again and again and again. And I give the puppies to my friend. And so we weren't allowed to free sterilization. We weren't allowed to do it. He's not interested in the well-being of the animal. He's interested in making sure that he is capitalizing upon another's um, reproductive system, just like you would in say the dairy industry or any other industry breeding horses, for example, or breeding dogs. It doesn't really matter. It's, it's all kind of part of the same vein of exploitation. Every time I witness those displays of cruelty toward animals or just, mm-hmm. you know, bad, just neglect of uh, the animal population, yeah. uh, when we're talking about like you said, cats or dogs. I, I was I, I, what frustrated me the most was the feeling of um, being powerless. You know, I'm in yeah. a. Uh-huh. It's not my country. I don't understand this country. I don't yeah. know how to to help those animals. Uh, right. And even if I had, you know, 
the will to do so, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm right. going to leave in a few days. Uh, yep. I mean, this is an impossible situation. So I just have, you know, to close my eyes, to look away, yeah. to just uh, be in denial of what's it's happening. Hard. It's really hard. I live in a tourist town. It's the same thing. We get all these messages from people saying, I found this kitten on the side of the road. I'm leaving tomorrow. What can you take the kitten? No. Well, I mean, we can't because you're one of nine this week that have sent me that message and i know you feel powerless and helpless and whatever but like i don't own an island mm -hmm. to put all these cats on let's let's get this straight there is just no place for them to go and you have to get used to the idea that you can't help everybody and i think that's one of the worst parts of being a compassionate and empathetic person is being able to close your eyes and say I understand the big picture. I'm doing everything I can on a daily basis, particularly as vegans, um, to eliminate my part in exploitation, torture, and murder. And, and that's bigger than what everybody else around here is doing. So um, so I kind of, I you can't help every single individual. There's not the resources or the homes or the space or, or you know, the veterinarians. And, and they're just, it just isn't like that. I mean, I, I can say that after 10 years running a rescue, but ultimately it is what led me to run a rescue. This idea of like, I'm not going to stand for this. Mm. I won't stand for this. I will do something. I am somebody who can do something. Well, I want to ask um, you about yeah. that because you did something. And yeah. I want to know how did it start? How uh, did the, you know the feelings of wanting to do something translated into uh, actions? What coffee? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, coffee. It's extremely strong here. This stuff's like like jet fuel. Uh, yeah, no, I mean it really is. If you just go to your local like Asian market, pick up some Vietnamese coffee, and you won't even have to ask that question. This stuff is like it's like I don't know. It's it's stronger it than your average your, uh, cocaine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it really messes with your idea of like, it makes you feel like a superhero. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit like, yeah, it makes you feel like you can fly a little bit and start an animal rescue. And like, for that, I, I deeply regret that. But um, <laughs> no, I mean, like at the time, you know, I'd been here six months, I guess I'd been here a year before, almost a year before I started the organization. I lived in one city for six months and then I came to Hoi An for six months and I had met some people. I met another girl who was willing to start a rescue with me. I was like, we've got to do something. She had like four cats at the time and I kept, people kept giving me animals. So I ended up with all these animals and I'm just like, because I'm just somebody who's always taking care of animals. I used to work with horses for, you know, 20 years. And then, uh, then now I've got, I've got this the whole thing going on. This is just what I do. I'm just the person that people give animals to. I've always been like that, even when I was just a little kid. And um, and so I kind of had this moment. There was this dog, Blair, who's still with us now. And she um, she was on the side of the road and she was like mostly bald and she just was laying there. And I have this picture of her that I'll never forget. And she was terrified. And, and I just was like, you know what? No. No, not today. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done looking at this stuff and driving by. I can't do this anymore. And so the reason I started the organization was like, 
I realized that I couldn't afford a vet bill like that. <laughs> like this was going to be out of control and I, we needed to have some sort of public funding for this. Hmm. So, um, I brought, I took her to the vet. I'm, you know, she was there for like a week, paid the vet bill. And then within the next couple of weeks, we put the, put the organization on Facebook and we kind of got started and then we had a fundraising party and got some money and and just kind of it went from there um i had no idea how far it would go i had no clue that it would end up just being we would be bombarded with animals over over the next couple of years particularly because we were the only people in the area doing anything um central vietnam I and mean, there was one foreign owned rescue in in saigon um, but there was still none in Hanoi and there was none in central Vietnam. And, and we were just like, we were it. And, and so, and so we just ended up being bombarded with animals. Most of them were dying anyway, and the vets were absolute garbage. And so they couldn't help us much. Um, I luckily had worked with vets, but I mean, with horses, you know, working with horses is not the same as saving kittens, by the way. I mean, the principles are kind of the same, but you essentially have to become a pharmacist slash drug lord. You've got to be able to, you've got to be able to, and we can get all of our, we can get everything over the counter here. You don't have to have a prescription for anything. Mm -hmm. So we can get our antibiotics. And as long as you've got a formulary for, you know, your dosages and can Google it, basically I was a Google vet. Um, because like, there's a lot of things that the veterinarian knew nothing about or nothing. No, it, it wasn't that he knew nothing. It's that he made up shit and that made it much, much worse. So, um, it was, it was horrendous. So within the first year I was like, we've got to start our own vet project. Um, well, because it was just so bad. Well, let's talk first about the state of animal welfare in Vietnam. You know, the reason sure. why you, you felt like you needed to create your organization. So you talked about the care, you know, the healthcare of animals. Why are the vets in Vietnam not skilled to deal with the current situation or with anything that has to do with, you know, uh, giving yeah. healthcare to animals? I mean, the, the connection, we can't ever eliminate that connection between the public health care system and the veterinary industry, mm -hmm. right? People like to divorce the two and they think they're completely separate. And I think that's just ridiculous. We're doing that to our own detriment. So we're like 98th in the world and public health care. It's not a good place to be. It's mm -hmm. not a great ranking. Mm -hmm. um, just the general health care of the humans in this country is pretty bad. Um, so when we talk about like being able to have animals get decent health care, you're starting from a horrible system that simply like they just don't understand pharmacology. They just don't. I mean, they'll get, we have the second highest antibiotic resistance in the world. It's not, oh, I mean, they'll wow. give them, they'll give antibiotics out like TikToks. Wow. You know, I mean, like, it's, uh, well, explain that for people, medicine. for people who don't yeah. know what it is. Right. So antibiotic resistance is basically you're, you know, there's all these bacteria um, that are becoming used to all the antibiotics that we're getting, giving them. And so they evolve, they evolve to be resistant to them. And if you keep giving antibiotics for all these bacteria, 
what happens is that you're just going to end up with antibiotic resistance. And that becomes a huge problem for hospitals and for people and for animals and, and the entire ecosystem for that matter. It's not limited to just humans and doggies and kitties. Mm. It goes far beyond that, <laughs> what, particularly when we're talking about farmed animals and going into the food system and all of that. Yes. I mean, you know, that means if you hurt yourself and you're, yeah. it's in, infected, we can't cure that can't normal you know, normal treatment will not have any effects because the bacteria is causing the infection are resistant to yep. any kind of drugs we have out it's there. Terrible. It is absolute. It's absolutely apocalyptic. Oh, no. You know, and people aren't realizing that. And I mean, predominantly the over antibiotic use is in the animal agriculture industries. So, I mean, we do it with people here too, but the animals and, and they're all getting it way more than the people are even. Um, and of course, that just creates this massive antibiotic resistant like playground in 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 farms and things like that so but it's the only way people know how to cure anything because the conditions are all really dirty so basic sanitation is just something they don't understand when when we had our vet clinic and so eventually what happened was I, we had to open our own vet clinic it was just a matter of like time i mean i saw a vet give a cesarean section without any anesthesia and i was like you know what i'm actually done with this crap i'm not going back there this is really fucked up part of my French. So, so I, um, so I, I, we went kind of all in on the veterinary project and we hired a veterinary intern who had never learned how to wash her hands, who had never seen the inside of an animal dead or alive, who had been in veterinary school for five years, mind you, five had years. only five years, never seen the inside of an animal dead or alive never did any anatomy work, never did anything like that, never watched a surgery. She'd never seen a cat neutered. Did you, you know, ever, did you ever ask her what, what she did during those five years? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it was predominantly things like, like studying chemistry and microbiology. It was kind mm -hmm. of like, like in the U S we have like, you have to get a science degree and then you go to vet school. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like all those little things, but just books that, you know, like the veterinary books and were th that were in their veterinary library which was tiny is like smaller than my tiny house um they were all from like decades and decades and decades ago and only one was i remember looking through her library there was one that was on canine surgery in english of course where nobody spoke any english which is hilarious and the book was written in 1955 that was their most recent book on canine surgery 1955 i don't know about you but we i think I think we can imagine that there's a lot that has changed since 1955 in canine surgery. Mm -hmm. So, so that was, that was a, a telltale of like a really poor um, education system. Um, I've heard now that the better, the better universities are doing things like they have to be able to do a sterilization before they leave the university. But frankly, nobody's learning proper sed sedation protocols mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. They're just not getting it. Um, they're, they're, understanding of basic animal anatomy and biology is piss poor to say the least um but their practical skills they don't have any animal handling skills they fundamentally don't believe that pain management is something that should be discussed 
Um, and it's not because they're bad people. Predominantly, the the people going into veterinary medicine are those that are that are going to work in the animal agriculture industry. So they're going to be either paper pushers in the animal health department that are putting their stamp at um, at, at, at slaughterhouses, or they're working in the pharmaceutical injury industry, which is basically just making antibiotics to keep farmed animals alive until we murder them um so you're not really learning like basic care so it's not even just cats and dogs i mean you have to look quite holistically at the veterinary industry and where its failures are um but i think in the beginning i didn't really understand how bad that was um um, I knew practically how they were failing, but I mean, they fundamentally didn't, you know, my vet here did not understand the difference between a steroid and an antibiotic in its function and, and, and applications. And it just, that's a big deal, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm <laughs> astonished. A really big deal. I'm really, yeah, it's scary. Be, because, you know, I have a cat and she's old and I don't know what yeah. I would do if I did not have, you know, her vet and Amazing yeah. yeah and thinking about you know the, the whole animal industry they rely a lot on vets and so right. you have a, a whole you know the front line the 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 front line information is wrong yes so what do you do and and not only that you have to put it in perspective of how vietnamese culture works in terms of hierarchy so mm. they're very much like there's a lot of deference mm. towards people of a higher rank right and so their ranking is like okay well you have a doctor doctor's degree so you are the word of god and i'm not going to question you doctors veterinarians here won't even tell you what medication they're giving your animals they'll be like oh they have a liver infection and they get and i'm giving him an injection injection of what never know right so they just won't tell you that because that would make them lose face and they don't want to give away the information so that you'll just go to another vet and tell them what they what they've done so it is very like it's really sick in that way and that that's true in a lot of parts of the global south in terms of the and the public health system is exactly the same they won't tell you what they're giving you they won't give you information they're just like I am, I am the doctor. This is the word of God. And this is what's going, this is what it comes out of my mouth. And so it must be right. Do not make me lose face by asking any questions or by questioning my ability to provide you with great care. So if nobody's asking any questions and if they do ask questions, they'll just make something up if they don't know the answer, which is most of the time. Mm -hmm. So those pet owners, those people that really want to help their animals are not able to help their animals because the veterinarians aren't aren't capable of providing just that basic care and their their information is is so like it's it's the last word right so so there's it's kind of a give and take sort of situation that just won't improve until the veterinary industry itself improves and people are like well, you should rescue animals and you should give you know help more animals with who with who specifically with what vets did you intend for me to rescue all these animals and so the first few years or two years before we opened the vet clinic was all about just like having all these animals that we were watching die from things that were that could have been treated mm -hmm. because we simply didn't have the veterinarians that knew how to deal with it could diagnose or talk to us even about what was going on you know we had hardly any diagnostics and if you don't have diagnostics you don't have treatment Okay, like it begins with like, do you have a blood machine? Well, do you know how much a blood machine costs? <laughs> no, you don't have a blood machine. But 
could you do a blood smear? Could you look at it under the microscope and give us some answer? Well, they don't know what they're looking at. They weren't taught that, right? So you're not going to get a, you're going to get sort of a vague, oh, they got a liver infection. Really? Are you sure about that? How do you know? Can you tell me why you said that? You know, oh, I'm going to give them an injection of B12. Well, B12 doesn't solve everything. Give them B12, atropine, ampicillin, and say, you know, like saline, essentially. Those are these things that they just throw at every single animal. And they're like, surprise, animal's dead. You know, and, and we just, it's kind of like a situation you expect at some point to not have your problem solved when you go to the vet. So animal, people bring their animals to a vet knowing that it's probably like, the last minutes of their life so when the animal dies because of veterinary malpractice it's not really surprising their interaction with the healthcare system as humans and with animals is just so negative that there's not like they don't really expect miracles to happen at a veterinarian you know just like they wouldn't expect miracles to happen when their grandma is dying or to get any real help you know i was born in North Africa. And the culture there is, you know, when I talk with family who still lives there and I tell them about my cat and how I bring her to the vet and the treatment I uh, I purchase, you know, for, for her, they feel like it's a joke because yep. it's just yep. a cat. Why are you spending yeah. your money on a cat? Right. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, there are people here that I've met that didn't know that a vet was a job. Mm. Yeah. They didn't know that was a thing. So if we're saying like, you know, like the, the media attention, of course, is focused on that Asians are cruel to animals. Mm -hmm. I think that we're missing a whole lot of that picture. This whole idea that there's this like savage anti-animal thing is just such a raging line of bullshit. It sells well. It sells well to dumb white people. Um, but I mean, the marketing is excellent. Um, but, but it's just a lie. It's just like, they lack access. It's not like I ran a vet clinic that had predominantly Vietnamese staff, um, Vietnamese clients for almost three years. I guarantee you, nobody walked into that clinic thinking, I just don't care about this animal. We were constantly busy, you know? Mm -hmm. This idea that they don't care about animals or cruel to animals or whatever all the time just doesn't make any sense. I don't. I would say there is a, it's just, it's just stupid. I mean, they're humans. Humans and animals have had a close relationship for a pretty long time, well, you know? I mean... Before getting into the, the cultural differences, and I want right. to get to that because it's such an interesting uh, discussion. It is, um, yeah. I want you to continue your uh, description of uh, the, the state of animal welfare in Vietnam. Uh, right. We talked about the healthcare and how it is completely broken, to say the least. What about, and we touched on that, uh, the stray population, you know, stray cats and dogs. Would you say that the country is in a state of crisis in terms of right. you know the That's number of no. no no do you know why the dog meat trade the dog meat um... trade and the cat meat trade yeah people don't don't really want to acknowledge what this is people are all boohooing about the dog and cat meat trade and they forget that that's our population control the vast majority of animals in this country are called roaming owned dogs so we don't have we don't have a stray population and if we do it's tiny it's tiny, you know, and pretty much every dog and cat has a place it goes 
to get food and and shelter from the rain and 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 whatever are they taken care of there not necessarily but it's not uh, like a whole bunch of animals roaming. It's not like Cambodia. It's not like Laos. It's not like Thailand. It's not like, you know, it's not like a lot of other countries that have a large street population where animals just literally exist without a person's direct care. That's not how it is. So so the we don't have a population control um, prob, uh, program in the sense that like, the, the reason the animals still aren't lasting more than a year usually is disease, dog theft, animals being sold into the meat trade from people who own them. Um, so it's not, so they have like a medical problem that the people aren't able to fix or whatever, or the animal gets old or the animal bit a kid or something like that. They're going to sell it to the dog meat guy. So that's always going to happen. So that's behavioral medical issues that goes into to the dog meat trade as well. Um, as a cat meat as well. Cat meat is much, quite a bit smaller, but uh, cats are harder to catch, to be fair. Um, dogs are always, cats are a little shifty, you know. Um, but but I would say, you know, people aren't looking at the fact that, like, if you get rid of the dog meat trade, you have to replace that with a functional population management system. And what's going to happen in Vietnam is that they're going to use culling. If there is no sterilization program that is widespread, the Vietnamese government, no doubt in my mind, will cull the animals with strychnine, will shoot them, whatever, which is what other countries like Myanmar have done and, and Cambodia. They just blanket kill them, you know, Egypt. They, I mean, there's a lot of countries that cull them like that, right? Because yes. they're dealing with you know, zoonotic diseases, particularly rabies. Um, and if a kid gets bitten and gets rabies and dies, I guarantee you that entire population of that region is going to be is going to be cold, you know. Um, so so these are all things that like we have to consider. Plus, there's a lot of infectious disease they get because animals aren't being vaccinated. So vaccination and sterilization have to come together, right? Mm. If we're going to improve the population uh, or the, the lives of the population of the existing animals and prevent more from being born that are going to be born into a horrible life, we have mm. to have sterilization and vaccination. The preventative care is the only care here, right? Otherwise, it's going to be culling and it's the dog meat trade. That's how we manage the population because stray populations, man, that's how, that's how you have a lot of problems with human human interaction that's how you have the bites and that's how you have the the zoonotic transfers and and we just i want to i want that to be understood very very clearly about the dog meat trade that it is our population management system and if you erase it if you ban it which i don't believe is going to happen in a country with such weak rule of law to begin with but if you ban it and it actually works then you're going to have a whole lot of strays and it's going to be a different problem but they're going to die one way or another it's just you have to choose which way it happens well this is a strange economical activity because yep. you know if there is a dog meat trade why is there no dog farms you know why right. are they going after stray no. dogs it's not really straight i mean so they'll come and they'll steal them or people will sell them or whatever or they'll pick them up you know um so dog theft is a really big problem for sure and but i mean it's so i mean to be clear there's about 
we estimate around 5 million dogs killed for meat every year. Mm. Um, and predominantly that happens in the North, but it's really like in every village, the dog catcher I just saw yesterday, same guy I've seen for the past 10 years. They do the same job. They just drive around slowly in the middle of the day and they can pick up animals that people don't want anymore and they can get, and they're you know, called dog catchers. It's just the dog catcher. Yeah. I mean, he's just, yeah. And he'll take it to a restaurant and whatever. Um, so, or they'll put them on a truck to Hanoi, something mm. like that. I mean, the North eats a lot more dog meat than the rest of the country, but still, so 5 million dogs are killed every year, but let's compare that to the numbers in animal agriculture. So 551 million chickens are killed every year. That's a factor of 105 more, right? Yeah. Multiplier. 105. That's not a small amount. 44 million pigs are killed. So if we're looking at the, if you, if you look at the whole picture, dogs are actually like 0.7% of the animals killed in this country, not including sea life. It's well, a tiny, tiny amount. <laughs> well, and people just absolutely lose their mind. Five million is a lot. And if I think about, sure. you know, like you said, uh, if there was no dog meat trade, we would have five million dogs in the streets what yeah oh and that five million doesn't stay five million for very long does it yes. you know what they're doing in the streets they're shagging yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> right it's not just they're not just hanging out not making babies that five million is going to be 25 million within a year yes. right so like you want and and what are they going to do with that 25 million i guarantee you're going to find a way worse way than the dog may trade to kill them Mm. guarantee it 100 percent. that's the way the vietnamese government works so um that's their version of you know protecting the pub public health um so yeah i mean it is a sh i mean five million is a lot we are a country of 97 98 million people it's a very large densely populated country so if you kind of put it into perspective i think people people still are thinking this is a tiny little country <laughs> you know mm -hmm. i mean it's really not um and it's very densely populated as well so it's asia it's asia it's asia i mean but we're so much more densely populated that, like laos has like six million people in it and they're our neighbors it's super weird nobody lives in laos i don't know why i've never been laos to laos a, but there doesn't seem to have people in it it's a strange yeah. exception to the it's Asian a weird exception to asia it's so weird so i can't wait to go because maybe it's actually quiet because vietnam is not um so so yeah i mean i think I think people need to put it into the larger perspective of how many animals that is by comparison. Do Am I saying the dog meat trade is a good thing? And I think this is where it gets confusing. Yeah. No, I am firmly against the dog meat trade. I have stopped dog catchers myself. I have taken animals from the dog meat trade. I have been to the, the, the restaurants. I have been, I've done all of this stuff. I see how they're killed. I see all of this. I, the dog catcher is in my neighborhood every single day. I don't have to wonder about the dog meat trade. This is a real part of my daily life i'm not some you know talking head in los angeles or london that's like oh boohoo the dog meat trade yeah okay well you were on vacation here at the freaking hilton for two weeks you don't know diddly dick about sorry mm -hmm. about the about the dog meat <laughs> okay. trade but it's really true it's just like they the, all the people that cry about it are also non-vegans anyway you mm -hmm. can't talk about the dog meat trade if you got bacon grease dripping down your chin yeah. i'm sorry like i'm just not buying it well, if I was on a, on a trip uh, in Vietnam and I saw, you know, um, a scooter with a, a dog uh, in a cage and I would look at that, I would think, oh, that's, what is that? And then yeah. that's it, that the idea of those are going to a restaurant and 
right. people are going to eat them would not even register in my mind because I have this cultural bias of, oh, yeah. but dogs are not for food. Dogs right. are, you know, our best friends. So, yeah, I, I think there is also this bias of, you know, you don't really notice until you notice until until you, know. you notice and it and it is it is revolting for the first couple of years of the organization we talked about dog meat endlessly mm. i mean it was it was something even though i was vegan i w but i mean i was vegan so it kind of like i feel like vegans are allowed to talk about it a little more if you're not vegan and you're talking about the dog meat trade i need you to shut up like uh, it's just i i have no patience for that um but but i would say I would say in the first couple of years, it is something that you see and it, and it, and it shakes you to your core. Mm. You know, I remember even just in November, I was in Cancun, which is a big city, one of the biggest cities in the South. And, and there was a whole bunch of dogs just packed. Like there, there's no way they could have put any more in this time, in this small cage that they put on the back of a motorbike. Mm. And, and it really is, even after all these years, it makes you sick, even though, I have seen, so I've seen one dog truck on the highway where all the animals were stuffed in cages and they were going north. And in that time, in 10 years of watching of this organization and looking at animals in, in horrible situations, I've seen one dog meat truck. I've seen lots of dog catchers, but in that time, I've seen thousands upon thousands upon thousands of chicken trucks, duck trucks, goat trucks, cow trucks, pig trucks, all of these animals that are being slaughtered in such larger numbers than the dogs. And yet the only thing people focus on when we talk about Vietnam and when we talk about animal cruelty and animal welfare in general is the dogs. And, you know, the thing is, I'll admit, like, you see them more. Mm -hmm. You just see them more. Dogs are such an integral part of human life. In every part of the world, where, yes. I mean, where can you go in the world where there's not somebody with dogs? Yes, They're a big part of our lives. So we focus on that. And I get it. They are wonderful. I love my dogs. I love dogs. I love animals, you know, but, but ultimately their suffering is an extension, not a, an exception. It's an extension of the existing industries of animal exploitation that exist all over the damn planet everywhere mm -hmm. in every country and in fact the vietnamese eat one third of the meat that an american does one third that is a that is a fraction of what americans debt are are producing in dead bodies so americans eat three times as many dead bodies um, of animals that suffered and died yes. for no mm -hmm. good reason than the vietnamese well, right. And I mean, that varies throughout the, the country, of course, depending on poverty levels and whatever. But still, yeah. Let's get into that, because the best friend I, I mentioned, the, the food she showed me, you know, it looked really good. But it was yeah. also, you know, packed with meat. There was meat right. everywhere, animal products everywhere. And I was really surprised. Is that different from Canada? No, I don't know. No. <laughs> Go to a restaurant. If I mean, like, I, I come back from Alabama and I'm like, where's all the, how am I supposed to eat here? True. Hamburger. You know, like I come down, I go, I would go to Alabama and be like, I can't even go to a restaurant because they put butter on every damn thing. They put butter and cheese on steamed vegetables. I, I just want some steamed vegetables. Yes. Throw me a salad that doesn't have cheese and egg in it. 
or chicken on top of it. You know what I mean? Like I would say, I would say it's much worse in other countries than Vietnam. There is a lot of cheese in Western, you know, cooking, but you know, I, I saw a lot of meat, just lots right. of meat and but they're little just... pieces yeah okay because you have to eat them with chopsticks <laughs> right so you it may look like a lot of meat but fundamentally if we're talking about weight mm -hmm. it's actually a tiny amount of meat by comparison to others because we don't use knives here so here i mean in the in in the west you have big chunks of meat that you cut with a fork and knife Right yes. here, we have to be able to get these little pieces out with chopsticks. That's true. right. Yes. So that just like the actual volume is significantly smaller. Mm. Is it in a lot of dishes? Yes. But here's the thing about vegan food, because we are a Buddhist country in which the Buddhists here, this type of Buddhism is where they are vegan twice a month, full moon and half moon. Some people are, yes. are vegan only for two days. Some people are vegan for four days. Some people are vegan for 10 days and some people are vegan all the time. Right. So as a result of that, that is all over the country, those all of those things that you saw that were meat, they replicate in vegan food. Right. So every single dish is uh -huh. made into a vegan version of that to be fed to people on full and half. Food. Which are called, I think, opasata days. Um, but so, yeah, okay, yeah, that's that's where the surprise uh, came from. The fact that, right. you know, I was not expecting that from Vietnam because in no. in my mind, Vietnam is a Buddhist country. So why are they uh, eating so much meat? Why right. are they, you know, exploiting animals so much? Because, you know, mm. you look at yep. China and there's this big uh, vegetarian movement in China. And yeah, you look huge. at India, same thing. And you can see, you know, the influences of Uh, Buddhism and Hinduism and such. Um, so I was expecting the same from Vietnam, but mm. no, not exactly. I think there's a lot of, I mean, as they get richer, mm -hmm. and this is true around the world, as, as countries get richer, they are also increasing the amount of dead bodies in their food. That is, that's just the standard graph, you know, like it just goes up together. So Vietnam is becoming wealthier and they don't have like a vegan movement in that regard. They don't, the Buddhists don't really, I mean, they're all, you know, the, the all the pagodas are all vegan, you know, all of that, but like, ultimately they're not like spreading the word of veganism on its own. It's about mm -hmm. compassion and, and, and whatever. Um, but ultimately that doesn't mean that they're not raising animals. It doesn't mean, you know, they're not like it hasn't, or their family members or whatever. They, they're not, it's just a very different version of like the vegan movement from like the UK, mm -hmm. for example, you know, um, but, but I don't see it at all in Thailand, frankly, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I mean, I mean, as far as vegan food in Thailand, I mean, I'd give a big thumbs down to that. Yes. I mean, like, you know, of course, like in Bangkok and stuff, it's fine. And and there are lots of places throughout the country, but it's not at all like in Vietnam where you can get vegan food any place you go. Um, you know, there's you... always a, a chai place, C-H-A-Y, chai. Yeah. How do you explain that disconnect that, you know, twice a month they eat vegan? for And they get it. And... Yeah. Yeah. Because and then all of a sudden nothing. I don't yes. get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. It makes me endlessly angry. I am constantly pissed off at Buddhists <laughs> for being like, I mean, I live in a constant state of like, what are you missing here? 
um, because they get it. It's like full and half moon and their food is great. And they're eating the same stuff and like all these great dishes and this yeah, beautiful, so you, you, you know, the, the cultural, why don't you do it all the time? Exactly. You have the cultural basis, the religious basis, yeah. and you the have great basis, yeah. vegan food, great vegan options. So yeah. why is there no, you know, support? For I think a lot of it is nutrition. A lot of people have this idea and are brought up with the idea of just like Americans that you mm -hmm. need meat to survive, that meat makes you strong and mm -hmm. without it, you are weak. Right. So I think a lot of it is nutrition based. Um, and that's just wrong information. The same wrong information I was given as a child, you know? Um, so we go so back to I, the broken healthcare system. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And they're like, you know, it's just trying to feed people meat in order to be healthier. And when in reality, it's quite the opposite, but it just doesn't make any sense. I get it. I, I mean, it, it makes me really, it makes me really angry. I get pretty pissed off at Buddhists. Yeah. So how do Vietnamese people perceive your sanctuary? Um, that's complicated because I live, you know, I live in a tourist town, right? It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Mm -hmm. So um, it's an old, an old city that was built by the Chinese and Japanese in the 15th century. And so we have this beautiful old town. And so we have a a large influx of foreign influence, right? So it's not like I'm some weirdo for doing this, but in the beginning, it's taken a long time for them to 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 accept it. But um, they're still like, I'm still about three kilometers from the center, which is like countryside here, which I think is really funny. <laughs> and um, and so there's still a lot of people, the people that live here may have gotten wealthier from, from work in town, but their education hasn't changed and their experience with the world hasn't really changed that much. So I think people think it's ridiculous what we do, um, you know, but, but in general, but then there's a lot of people that really support it as well. Um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people, a lot of Vietnamese just love doggies and kitties, which is standard around the world. Mm -hmm. Um, but the idea of being a vegan organization and being specifically like anti-speciesist is something that is, is really, really brand spanking new to this country. And we are the only farm sanctuary in the country. Um, we're the only anti-speciesist organization. We're the only vegan rescue. So that makes us a from being an animal rescue which they only kind of get anyway to being mm -hmm. a farm sanctuary is is a big leap you know and to be yeah. like somebody who loves dogs and doesn't eat pigs like that's like why would you do that you know like but that's true in every country i don't feel like that i, I we get that same problem and whether i'm in france or in in you know costa rica they're like so wait you love dogs and you don't eat other animals <laughs> are you sure that's normal? Are you okay? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, really. So we are freaks in a lot of ways, um, not just to the local people. Well, well honestly, Kat, um, it's good that you're here. <laughs> it's good that you're in Vietnam. Yeah, so let's talk about this. Let's talk about your sanctuary. Who are the residents there? And what are your current projects? 
Right. So, I mean, currently we're trying really hard to get our veterinary project restarted, but we've been mm -hmm. trying for like four to five years at this point. It's very difficult to get the money for it because people hear veterinary and they just don't think that it's worthy of um, any funding, um, especially because we're a vegan vet clinic and an anti-speciesist project, which ruffles a few feathers. I'm not going to lie. Um, I'm, I was built to ruffle feathers. That's kind of what, what my whole life purpose is, but but anyway, it's difficult to get funding for. So we have a sanctuary. We're the only, like I said, the only farm sanctuary in the country. Um, as far as we know, there is another one. Nobody's been able to find it for us. Um, but we, um, so we've got two pig residents that are eight and 12. So they're pretty, basically the oldest of their breed in the entire country. Um, we've got four chickens who are lovely. Wow. They came to us just this spring. Um, God, we've got nine kittens, which is so many. I can hear the one screaming behind me. There's four in the room just behind me. Um, I fed you, be quiet. Um, I wanted them to be quiet during this podcast anyway. So, and then we've got another five that were just sterilized yesterday. Um, and we've got, I think 15 other cats. And then we've got, we're really reducing our number of dogs. We're really working hard to reduce the number of animals as much as possible because we need to put all of our funds into the veterinary project, which will ideally be a mobile veterinary clinic. So reaching the people that don't have access to veterinary care and providing vaccinations and sterilization. So ongoing preventative care in the rural regions in central Vietnam, and also being able to train um, Vietnamese veterinarians that are fresh Fresh out of graduate or fresh out of school so we get them before they've learned anything really <laughs> stupid and then we train them up so that they're being trained by our international veterinary staff so this is a big project we wanted to get started in january 2024 um but yeah at the moment we have something called kitten miss which is getting rid of all the kittens getting them all rehomed by christmas we want all those babies to have homes by christmas um, because, you know, people don't realize that every single animal is a real drain on our ability to do preventative work, um, not only on our time, but also on our financial resources and physical space. Um, so we really want to get all those babies out as quickly as possible to safe and loving lifelong homes, which is far harder than you'd ever imagine it to be here. Um, so we can also export, we have, I guess, three animals going in September, um, to the, um, to Paris, and then they'll go to the UK. Um, so we do international exports as well. So if you want to adopt animals, we, we definitely can do the rabies titer test and microchip them and get them sent over within 90 days. Um, yeah, so we're able to get some animals out, but it's just a matter of like, that is a hugely expensive process that is so, so inefficient in terms of like the number of animals in need here. The biggest mm. problem is that it takes so much. I mean, like, I'm happy they all have homes. I'm really happy that I've been able to provide that. I just did three last month to the UK and, and Paris, and I'm I'm super happy about that. They, they deserve lifelong loving homes, but it took so much money and so much time and effort to get them on those planes and then to get them transported. And I had to rent a car to drive across the UK to bring them to Wales in the middle of nowhere. I mean, like it was some serious work. 
Um, I'm super happy they're there, but like we have to be a lot more efficient if we're going to address the problem that exists, right? Like I said, 5 million dogs are killed for dog meat every year. If we could sterilize a, a thousand a year, you know, like we're making a huge dent on it, but we can't do that. If I'm, if, if my time and all of my staff time is spent just trying to maintain the sanctuary, trying to just keep our heads above water in terms of funding our overhead, um, which has just been really hard um, and and trying to move forward with a project that's actually going to do the amount of work that we need to do for the number of animals that are actually in need. My job is to go out of business, Ryan. It's to, I, I, my whole job is to have no more animals to rescue, right? How am I supposed to do that if I'm focused on, on getting a puppy to Paris? You know, how am I supposed to focus on that if all of our time is taking animals and rehabbing them and paying vet bills and then putting them on airplanes to someplace else because local adoptions are so rare. And, um, yeah. and you're not actively looking for them. I mean, sometimes people no. come and just dump them at your front door. Dumped, yeah. yeah. Yeah, most of them are being dumped on us. Um, you know, one of the, the poodle that went to to Wales, she was locked in a, she was zipper tied in a beer crate and left at the end of our driveway. The four kittens that we just got right here, they were dumped on um, at the, at the um, shelter. And the other four, they were also dumped. Um, we had to bottle feed them every three hours when we got them. That wasn't fun. Um, that takes all of my energy and sanity to do. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, like most of them, I mean, there are some that we find for sure. Um, there are some that were like, basically most of our animals that came to us came from major medical cases mm. so they were animals that were like in a like actively dying and we intervened you know but unfortunately people people get quite excited about that on the day that they're rescued and don't understand that the vast majority of them are, are gonna end up not being adoptable or having very major difficulties being adopted particularly when it comes to cats and that we're going to have them for the next 15 years, but paying those expenses for like the existing residents in a sanctuary is unbelievably difficult. Mm -hmm. People do not want to, they want, they're happy to be like, oh, I'm going to help you pay this vet bill for this animal you got today. Okay. Well, what about the next 15 years? What are you going to do about that animal then? Mm -hmm. um, so ongoing expenses tend to be very difficult for all rescues around the world. Um, people, it's just not, it's not sexy. No. Uh, overhead isn't sexy um paying vet bills for a nine-year-old cat that never got adopted when we got him as a kitten um not sexy so um so unfortunately just the entire business model of sanctuary and shelter and rescue here does not function because mm -hmm. locally it's so difficult to get adoptions it's not we're not in california we're in vietnam most people here like i said have owned roaming dogs so the animals are not safe we do not adopt to anybody that lets their animals roam around so everybody that has a dog will have to have it safe indoors and in a protected garden which 99% of people here don't have um, otherwise that animal is going to get stolen and killed or it's going to end up getting an infectious disease it's going to end up being in a traffic accident so we don't adopt to people like that which eliminates the entire local population mm. for that matter same with cats. Cats, we only will adopt to indoor homes, but it's a very hot country. Everybody has their windows open. Everybody yes. has doors open all the time. So we can only adopt to people living in apartments and those apartment buildings have to allow cats. 
So that is just in general, like our ability to take animals is ham hampered by the fact that they got to go somewhere. You, you can't just take them. It doesn't, it actually doesn't work like that. The math doesn't work out, you know, because the amount of animals that need to be taken, we simply just don't have the capacity to just keep adding more and keep adding more and keep adding more while we're ignoring the preventative work that prevents those more from coming. Right. It's, it's so crazy. that balance has to rebalance. It's way off at the moment. Well, local shelters here in North America have a hard time finding homes yes. for their residents. So mm -hmm. you're in Vietnam. You're not in a friendly environment uh, for, you know, animal welfare. And you have to do the same job. It's 10 times harder. So truly, you have all of my admiration. Insane. No, but yeah. you're you're doing some miracles uh, here, and it, it's sad to see how you know even um, on on the international scene, you know, sometimes it feels like uh, Westerners and people in uh, richer countries have like um, have more values in media's in um, you know everyone pays more attention to what happens in the West, even if it's something minor, yeah, but then there's a catastrophe and it's taking the lives of I don't know how many people in a poor country and nobody pays attention. But yep. that that same dynamic applies to animals. We There are also animals in Vietnam and in other parts of the world who are suffering. Yeah. And yeah. we, you know, we're so focused on animals here, which is understandable. But... Yeah. What about the rest of the world? Your, so so it's in your community and you're paying attention to the ones there. Well, imagine that you live in a country in which nobody pays attention to that. Mm. <laughs> and, and the people here don't pay attention to it. And the only people that pay for us to do this work live like 7,000 miles away. You also have to consider that our funding is not coming predominantly from the poor residents of the country that we mm. live in and mm. a community that does not understand or care about the work that we do. Right. So they don't they don't get what's going on predominantly and they don't want to participate in it in terms of philanthropy. So so not only are we ignored by people abroad, because the only thing that people think about here is the dog meat trade or the Vietnam War, but we also just don't have access to the funds to keep going in terms of like rescue and, and rehabilitation, rehoming. You know, we just don't, I mean, it's very difficult to get people to connect to Vietnam. Most people couldn't find us on a map. So we're really in a, a major disadvantage. And then you add to it the fact that we are an anti-species vegan organization, which pisses everybody <laughs> off. <laughs> you know, like we are outspoken and absolutely will not stop talking about abolitionism. And I guarantee you that does not make us any friends. So you take a giant pool of people that otherwise would support us, even amongst the local population, because we're helping animals in general. And a lot of the Buddhists find that to be valuable. Um, but then you then you're like, oh, but we're vegan. And they're like, oh, I don't know. That's really confrontational for me. Yeah. Why? Because you kill animals. Yeah. Yeah, you do. So we actually don't kill anybody. And I'm not going to judge you and be mean to you, but I'm not going to lie about it. You know, my son is a pig. My real son is a pig. I know that sounds insane, but he is my son. And, and I love him more than anything in the world. And if you think he's edible, you don't support our work and you don't love animals. If that gets you all hurt because of the 
because of the fact that it confronts you, you need to look at yourself, not at me as being somebody judgmental or whatever. You need to step back and be like, am I harming animals? Hmm. Yeah, we rescue animals from you if you're not vegan. That's a hard thing for people to take in. We rescue animals from non-vegans. That is mind-blowing. You are a sanctuary. What are you protecting your residents from? It's the local population. The people that eat them. The people around. 98% of the human population, right? So like, it's insane that we're like, we're really having to defend ourselves against people that think my son is edible, you know, and our chickens belong on a Caesar salad. Yeah, because they couldn't figure out that like plants have protein. I'm like, well, I don't know. Like, stop talking to the marathon runner, Ironman triathlete who doesn't think that you need to murder an animal. You know, like, I'm sorry, we're not in the same boat. So, like, we do, we are confrontational in that degree, but it's like in that regard, I think, but that's just kind of who I am as a person. And I'm never going to stop being that. I mean, I was kind of a, a virulent meat eater before I was a vegan as well. I hated vegans. I, I, I told people I wanted to put them on an, on an island and napalm them. Like oh, I just no. was super anti-vegan. Yeah, I was a fox hunter and I worked for the National Turkey Federation in Washington, D.C. I was I worked for the farmer's lobby. I mean, like people change. I get it. And I'm just but people don't change unless you talk about it. So vegans that run animal rescues that don't talk about veganism, they really upset me the most because the animals don't need silent vegans. They need people who are willing to stand up for all species. And it's not going to be the ones that are doggy, loving, pig eating um, animal rescuers. It's not going to be them. It has to be us. And we just have to stand up in it. And I guarantee you're going to lose a lot of money doing it. But ultimately, we've got, what, 2.8 trillion animals that are unnecessarily killed every year. And I'm pretty sure if they had to choose between somebody who was just going to keep their donors happy and somebody who was going to stand up for them, they would take somebody standing up for them and taking a hit. Well, you know, at least we work uh, for animals. I don't work for I don't work for the public. And at least you want to support someone who is wholeheartedly in the fight, you know, Someone who looks at your sanctuary knows that you're here for the good reasons, you know, and you're not going to, you know, this is not something about you. This is not, you're really, you know, you believe in your cause and you're doing your If I were greedy, this would be a horrible place to be. (laughs) (laughs) This would be the worst possible job. People are like, oh, you do it for the money. Really? (laughs) Show me the money show me i would love to see that well at least people should appreciate did i just forget my pin code to my atm is that where the money is oh no 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 we don't get anything out of this i guarantee you there is no joy in this work it is all about the animals and we do the best we can i mean it kills us all the time but you know like i said people should at least appreciate you know your feelings your sincerity in what you're doing Uh, At the very least, you know, Mm -hmm. they know that you're not bullshitting here. Um, Definitely not. So if uh, listeners uh, want to support your sanctuary, Mm -hmm. what should they do? Um, We definitely can use the funds, but more than funds, I would say, you know, like donating is great. Um, but so is 
helping us get animals adopted so that we can move on to the to the veterinary program. Mm -hmm. I would say being able to share our work is really nice and to be able to say, hey, there is a morally consistent animal rescue in Vietnam who loves and does not kill animals. We should support them. Um, I would say also, you know, you could always do fundraising for us, which would be really great. Things like running a race, because I'm I'm a big runner or I was until my foot fell apart. Um, but I I really love it when people do athletic events and they and they fundraise for us in that way because that's really good for us for not only for the funds, but for marketing in general, getting the word out about us. We are in kind of a, a dark space in, in the sense of we have very small reach for the organization and and getting just getting the word out is really, really helpful so that we have a wider reach for our work. Um, and that gets us availability of more resources to do the work that we need to do and, and to get more animals adopted and to be able to, to get more staff, to be able to get more, um, more to get the veterinary project rolling again and have, have a, a, just a wider reach to be able to do that is invaluable. And, and the idea of, you know, fundraising for your organization, you know, make it fun, make it something, yeah. you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, like a whole sporting event. It can be just a garage, <laughs> <laughs> but it can be just a Not garage sale, like, yeah, you know, it yeah, can be, exactly. yeah, it can be exactly. going door to door or having a, yeah. uh, or a table at the entrance of your supermarket, something like that. And, right. uh, you know, talking with people, you know, gather with friends and do a game night and for, right. uh, for your sanctuary. So, Yeah, it, it can take so many forms. And uh, to end this conversation, Kat, did you want to add something? Um, yeah, I mean, there's just one thing that I think people people forget is uh, mm -hmm. compassion fatigue is a big subject for me. And I think people, I want people to be a lot more compassionate to people that work in this field um, because we go through and see a lot of things that we can't necessarily always share and we shouldn't have to share and it can be very dark and isolating this is an unbelievably isolating job mm. even when we weren't uh you know being I, i i think i think being where we are and being a vegan organization and all of that makes it very isolating but i think even if you're in california it can be very isolating if you run a farm sanctuary um or a veterinary project or whatever particularly as vegans and and we see such horrible things and i want people to just really understand where people are coming from and to not be so um i need the peanut gallery to shut up i i would say i would say to acknowledge that people that work in this field need days off Um, not all of us can be volunteers. To be a volunteer is a financial luxury that the vast majority of us that are professional caretakers don't have. Mm. Um, I, I don't have a partner. I don't have family money. I don't have, you know, like a big credit card limit. I, you know, like we, I can't be a volunteer. I do take a very small salary. Um, we have a hard time even justifying that we pay our staff. And I think that's insane. Um, not everybody's in the same situation in every part of the world. And we have to be really mindful of that. But just in general, like understand that this is a really traumatic job. And when you send people pictures of the dog meat trade or whatever, you're constantly re like we see plenty of horrors. Like we don't have any, any lack of that in our, in our brains. And it's very, very stressful. And we also have to say no to a lot of animals and that, that sticks with us our entire lives. I mean, I, I remember every time I said no 
to an animal because I know that's certain death. Um, people get very, very, very pushy online with rescues and are just like, you have to take this animal or I'm going to put him to sleep or this person's going to get it and whatever. And sometimes people don't understand the lack of resources. Sometimes we just don't have quarantine space. Sometimes we just don't have the staff or we don't have the money. We don't have the vets. We can't help. And we have to acknowledge and accept that we can't save everybody. And I think as long as everybody has that sort of understanding of the individual humans that do this work that I do, um, we can all be a lot more compassionate towards them and ensure that they do have real breaks, that they do have a, a living wage, that they do have, you know, adequate with staff to to make sure that they don't burn out burnout i mean in the united states the average person working in animal welfare or in any, any sort of rescue is five and a half years i've done double that in vietnam i assure you it has taken its toll right so i think people need to really understand that this is a burnout job and to be kind to the people and not just be like oh you're an angel and and whatever but then the moment we want to take a vacation you're like i can't believe you're taking a vacation yeah well yeah i'm gonna i'm going to museum today what are you gonna uh, do about it let me add to, to what you said you know you want the the nonprofits, the causes that you you are supporting to be run by professionals that are yeah. well paid and that who have the same uh you know standards of employment uh, that you have because you want the best people behind your cause. Um, you don't want like anybody coming in and just doing whatever. This is not how things get done. You need professionals Absolutely. and you need professional yeah. conditions. And that's mm -hmm. something very you know, counterintuitive. And it comes from, you know, this Christian background of, you know, you're not Sacrifice. a non. Yeah, you're not right. a non doing it. Um, the, the God's work or something like that. No, we're, we're being professional. No, we're, no, we're people that have student loans. Um, yeah, we're we're humans that have health insurance. Um, exactly. We have to we have to drive something. We have to have friends. We have to we have to participate in the world like everybody else, or our job suffers. And I know that more than anybody because for most of this ten years, I didn't have any of that. And, you know, for the first three years, I didn't take a salary at all because I was doing my master's and I had a small income from student loans. And then I started my PhD. And so which I had to quit because I didn't have time for. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I got nearly 200 grand in student loan debt. I mean, it's not like I'm in deep trouble. I'm in deep trouble for being in this job. Um, but I live far away. Come and get me, America. <laughs> you know, like I'm not paid it. Don't, I'm not paid it. don't tempt um, them, okay? <laughs> don't tell them I'm here. Um, but 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 in general, I mean, I think that we need to professionalize the nonprofit world in the sense that like people aren't going to do good if they can't live a normal life while doing good. We can make so much more money in the private sector if I if I just ran a vegan business, I would be rolling in it. With the amount of effort and and passion that I put into it, but instead I'm working in a nonprofit and I get nothing, and people think I deserve nothing, um, and, and that is very frustrating. And also, I want people to think about what you are against. You know the yeah. the, the animal industry, imagine. but also the big problems that you're going against. Yeah. You know, it's a uh, David uh, versus Goliath uh, situation. I try to get through a day without punching anyone. That's my, <laughs> that's actually like, if I get to the end of the day and I'm like, 
You didn't scream at anybody. You didn't pull a knife on anyone. Nobody got kicked in the face. You're doing great, Kat. Keep it up. Well, you need that's my all, job here. Well, you need that's all, my job here. All the possible, you know, best resources uh behind you. You need everything in your you know arsenal to go against yeah. that big giant. So we do. so let's stop this conversation here. Okay. <laughs> and I would like to express truly how I respect what you do and I admire Thank what you, you do and I think you're so strong uh, for doing what you're doing and having taken the time you know to answer my questions and to explain to listeners you know what is happening there and share your insight and experience you know mm-hmm. this it's been a valuable 10 years I learned a lot yeah <laughs> Exactly. You're an expert yeah. now on this topic and yeah, definitely. your your voice on that is truly precious. So thank you very much, Kat. For thank you for letting me voice that. I think it's not it's not often I get to express like the things that have happened here and discuss kind of the realities on the ground. So I appreciate it. Thank you everyone for listening. I kindly invite you to share this podcast with the vegans you know. Let's encourage more people to take action. Again, thank you so much for caring. And I will see you next Tuesday for a new episode.